Well, the, the title is so tentative that I've already changed it. And the, uh, the title of the talk is uh, Orientalism at War in Korea. Uh, it's still about why small wars have big consequences, just mostly in Korea, set in Korea. I uh, should emphasize as my sort of get out and escape clause that I'm at a very preliminary stage of research in this project. I've only started on it, really working on it since January, uh, and even then I've not been concentrating uh, frontally on it, trying to finish something else. So this is the stage at which it's absolutely the most useful for me to present and get feedback on ideas that are being developed. But of course, it's also the stage where the most work is required of the audience uh, to pick apart the many confusions that I'm sure you'll, you'll find. So without further ado, let me get going. I try as often as I can to begin by invoking my main man, Max Weber. Uh, Mariana Weber once commented that her husband was profoundly moved by the ways in which an idea in its earthly course, its historical development, always seemed to operate in opposition to its re original meaning and thereby destroy itself, potentially destroy itself. In a sense, I'm interested in a recurring instance of this phenomenon, the fate of Western assumptions of superiority in the face of military reverse or defeat in conflicts in the non-European world. What happens at home and abroad when mission accomplish turns, as it were, palpably turns out not to be the case. Now, as a matter of historical observation, small wars gone wrong increasingly have come to play prominent roles in metropolitan politics and society in the 19th and 20th centuries. Political and cultural contestation over limited wars generated by imperial commitments comes to a head when things do not go as expected. The political fortunes of Benjamin Disraeli, William Gladstone, Jules Ferry, Francesco Crispi, and William McKinley, among others, revolved in some measure around small wars. With the turn of the 20th century, especially its last half, the severity and consequences of defeat began to mount. Anti-colonial nationalist wars in the Third World led to regime change in France and Portugal, while the Vietnam War remains the most significant moment in American politics and society since 1945. War against non-European others generates political, social, and cultural reaction and change in, the we in Western societies. The term small wars turns out to be ironic, a disdainful attempt to name and contain energies that would come to overwhelm Western governments and transform politics less than a century after its coinage in the 1890s. The, the generative character, the cultural and social productivity of such wars is a consequence of the constitutive role of the Orient broadly understood in Western identities. These identities are committed in diverse ways to notions of Western vitality, strength, and dominance over non-European peoples. At the same time, they evince a fear of and a fascination with the other, the Orient, literally or figuratively speaking. Evidence of Oriental power and potency, for example, uh, uh, the rise of Japan or China, has the capacity to disrupt Western narratives, leading not only to moments of self-doubt and critique, but also fueling energies for change or redoubled efforts at continued dominance in new circumstances. There is no more obvious sign of Western weakness and Oriental strength than defeat in battle or failure to obtain victory. Unsurprisingly, then, such setbacks become sites of cultural disruption and production at all levels of Western society. 
Now, this project seeks to animatize this broad canvas through study of a hugely consequential but oft-neglected war. Among other things, the Korean War set the mold for U.S. conduct of limited war in the Third World during the Cold War, creating the stalemate machine and putting an end to rollback as anything other than a rhetorical posture until Reagan. And he, even he only managed to invade Grenada in order to be nearly undone in Nicaragua. Korea played a very, uh, Nicaragua again, another case of the power of peasant resistance in the third world to undo governments in the West. Korea played a very significant role in militarizing containment strategy. It rescued and re-energized McCarthyism and related activities, reshaped relations between economy and the state in the U.S., helped put an end to the long democratic reign over the White House while placing a distinctive Cold War stamp on party politics in the U.S. In many ways, the Korean War was formative for what has been termed Cold War culture. Just to pick out one strand, the fascination with brainwashing in science fiction and elsewhere, from the Manchurian candidate to invaders from Mars, owes a great deal to Korea and the crisis over American POWs. The Korean War helped make what the Vietnam War took apart in American society and politics. Korean War is immensely generative in American politics and society. The Korean War also played two roles of consequence, illuminated by my particular lens. U.S. constructions of communism in the Cold War employed distinctively Asian and Oriental tropes. There is crossover and much traffic between the red and yellow perils. Soviet totalitarianism was also Oriental despotism. This distinctive combination, conception of the communist other, I want to suggest, was sealed together, given shape, form, and energy in no small measure by the U.S. experience in Korea, especially with the role of communist China. Second, role of the Korean War illuminated by my particular lens, Korea marked a basic change in American national experience with respect to the idea of the frontier, our own national Orientalism. The frontier and its salience in American society was never quite the same once the Korean War stalemated along the 38th parallel after that first tumultuous year when the war raged up and down the entire peninsula. Even the Air Force cowboys were fenced in on ranges just south of the Yalu River, unable to hit communist sanctuaries in Manchuria forever after. Both the war machine and the war story denied satisfying final victory through firepower. In American imagination, the frontier was the site of continual expansion, one that entailed a total war and exterminationist mentality towards towards any Indians who happened to be in the way. The frontier is also a moment in American narratives of character, a place where, for example, American men ask themselves if they are equal to the demands of frontier life, of a gunfight, among other challenges. The Spanish-American War and the war against Japan Japan had carried the frontier across the Pacific in ways that reproduced and re-energized frontier narratives, the latter case involving a gigantic struggle only five years before the outbreak of the Korean War, one fresh in the memories of the Americans who participated. When Chinese communist forces intervened decisively in late November 1950, American westward expansion, as it were, ran up against the immovable obstacles of the People's Republic of China, in part conceived as a mass horde that even American technological superiority could not entirely overwhelm, and behind it, the threat of global war with the Soviet Union. At this moment, control of what Thomas Engelhardt has called the American war story, 
the victorious conduct of righteous total war against a savage other passed into enemy hands. Although Inglehart thinks this moment mistakenly thinks this moment happened in Vietnam. Right? There's a pervasive ignoring of Korea for Vietnam. This closing of the frontier, this loss of control over the war story and its possibility of total victory was an event with little precedent in American history. Not because there was a defeat, but because there was to be no redeeming victory. Indeed, as General MacArthur feared at the time, the very idea of victory was given up. There would be no rollback expansion, only stalemate as the very object of U.S. policy. Cultural energies in the U.S. that had been directed outwards turned inwards in spasms of blame and doubt. So traumatic was Korea, it would later have to be mostly forgotten. Now, the social, cultural, and political productivity of the Korean War, and in different ways the Vietnam War, I want to argue, is due to the jarring disjunctures between this American war story and the identity narratives it sustained on the one hand and the experiences of American armies in Asia after 1945 on the other. Events had a way of upending the old frames, stressing them as agents struggled to refix them. Often they could only do so by putting in place more radicalized, extremist accounts of the red and yellow enemy other, accounts in many ways constitutive of 1950s Cold War culture. These accounts of Korea could be developed and sustained on the home front, in part because of the absence of the kind of electronic mediation that would unhinge them in Vietnam. Now, throughout my talk, I'm going to be jumping back and forth between events in this first year in Korea. And I thought uh, I better not assume that everyone knows the basic sort of operational history of the Korean War. So I have very quickly a set of slides um, to show you the course of the war, which began on June 25th, uh, 1950, with a North Korean invasion into South Korea, pushing back uh, the Republic of Korean forces, Army, ROCA, um, and U.S. forces that they started to arrive all the way to the Pusan perimeter right, in July and August. 1950. Then, in September, MacArthur lands at Incheon, amphibiously, one of the most dangerous amphibious operations ever conceived, although not because of enemy resistance, and there's a breakout from the Pusan perimeter. And the Americans cross all the way into North Korea and almost up to that Manchurian border with China and the Soviet Union over there in the quarter. Uh, those red uh, 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 blobs showing uh, communist forces. Now, there's actually something really mistaken about those red blobs because we, we underestimate the civil and revolutionary character of the Korean War. There was a huge guerrilla component to the war, and North Korean forces would often fade into being guerrillas when they were defeated in the field and then come out of the, the mountains again behind the UN US front line. So, actually, there should be red blobs all up and down, all up and down the peninsula. Now, in late November and December 1950, the Chinese attack. And they drive the Americans and the UN all the way out of North Korea and all the way back down to a new Pusan perimeter. Right? All of this is within six months of the war, the war beginning. And then the war settles in by spring of 1951 into its final two years which is a static confrontation across the armistice line, right? That's the first year of war in Korea, and then, and then two more years of very heavy fighting often 
and heavy casualties as the war stalemated along here and the U.S. refused to allow MacArthur and its generals to bomb communist sanctuaries in Manchuria. Right? That's the stalemate machine. I should also say, while we're using this phrase, small war, there's very little that's small about Korea. Casualties in Korea range, estimates range between three and four million, most of them Korean civilians, and a very large percentage of them killed by American air action, right? The air war in Korea is horrific. We, we bomb that place up and down the peninsula in a variety of different ways. As a percentage of population... More Koreans died in the Korean War than Poles died in World War II. And Poland is usually taken to be the gold standard uh, for civilian casualties in war. All right? It's not a small conflict. Okay. Now, I've outlined a broad canvas, one that obviously I'm not going to be adequately established in this talk or at this stage of my research or maybe ever. Uh, And so in the body of my paper, I want to first briefly consider some points of broad theoretic context for the project as a whole, and then look at some of the general interconnections between Orientalism and war. I'll then develop some significant points of contact with the Korean War uh, and close with a few remarks on the frontier theme. So theoretic context. Briefly highlight two sort of general points. Uh, Firstly, and very quickly, uh, this project seeks to develop some aspects of the imperial character of the Cold War and the Third World, and in particular, the political military dynamics of imperial war. Now, there's a strong political economic version of, imperial, of, of informal empire in U.S. Cold War scholarship, but the sort of post-colonial character of war and relations between war and society after 1945 are rather less developed. Now, the second point of broad theoretic context I want to highlight concerns the place of war in social theory. Uh, And sort of very briefly, our main traditions in social and political inquiry tend to conceive war as an outcome or effect of other social relations and processes. By contrast, this project is set in a tradition that sees war as socially generative and productive. The idea here is to let war enter into and reshape social outcomes and processes. And I think the only literature that really does this in a sort of fully-fledged, satisfactory kind of a way is the war and state formation uh, literature. What I'm interested in is the productive dimensions of war uh, in cultural and discursive domains. In various ways, myths of war, narratives of war, war stories, if you will, underpin social and political organization broadly conceived. What happens when these war stories are placed under severe pressure by the course of wartime events? Okay. I'm well overdue now for some, a few words about the very idea of Orientalism and its relations with war. Now, I'm using Orientalism as a kind of shorthand for the broader cultural field of colonial discourse through which the West constructs and acts upon non-European peoples. My use of Orientalism is to serve to highlight the quite sharp distinctions between self and other that often mark representations of war. At the core of Orientalism is an argument about cultural hegemony at home and abroad. In a variety of sites and contexts, Westerners define themselves against an inferior, orientalized other, empowering dominant identities and ideologies in diverse ways. These same cultural resources authorize and shape Western involvement in the world outside the West, whether this takes the form of imperial war, imperial rule, informal empire, or the development enterprise. Orientalism and colonial discourse more broadly 
form the cultural context within which practices of Western expansion and intervention into the non-European world take place. Now, Orientalism posits two separate but mutually constitutive worlds, the West and the Orient. They are usually imagined as radically different and separate, but defined in terms of one another through a shifting set of binary distinctions, such as rational, irrational, civilization, barbarism, individual mass, white, dark, and freedom, slavery, just to pick a few of the most prominent. As Said argues, Orientalism both produces the Orient, it creates a vision of it, and it elaborates an account of the West, who and what we are. Orientalist constructions inform the identities, ideologies, and imaginaries of Western societies, and they do so in part through shifting notions of the West and its purposes in world history. The concept of Orientalism and of colonial discourse tends to be employed in studies of scholarly and literary texts. There's some work on popular culture, and there's some work on the administrative, political, economic, and military uh, discourses of imperial expansion and rule. Yet Orientalism remains very much a matter of cultural style, of intellectual authority over the Orient. Those are quotes from Said. It's all about how the West represents its others in ways which build up a positive notion of the self while demeaning non-European peoples. Orientalism is always and everywhere about Western superiority. As Said remarks, it puts the Westerner in a whole series of possible relationships with the Orient without ever losing him the relative upper hand. The Orient offers very little resistance to this imagined world. Again, those are quotes from Said. Now, in one sense, this is absolutely correct. If we're interested in how Americans construct the outside world, how that world really is, what it's really like, is beside the point. What is important is how Americans understand it, imagine it within the terms of their own myths, narratives, and identities. This standpoint leads to what I call an internalist character to analyses and representations of war and violence in disciplines such as American and cultural studies. They turn to American national history to account for the development of cultural frames, from Puritan Indian hating and horror at Indian sensuality, to cowboys and Indians in the Wild West, to my lie, to parody the connections some of these traditions make. David Campbell employs a similar move in his classic IR text, Writing Security, where we spend a great deal of time reading about how the Puritan idea of a city on the hill informed U.S. security discourses in the Cold War. It's as if cultural histories respected national sovereignty and were disconnected from the wider world. The agency of those constructed as Oriental or other remains hidden, safely beyond national borders. Now, this internalist approach, as I've indicated, and as much as I think it has a lot to offer, is flawed because we live in a world, in an interconnected world, made up of opposing wills of other peoples who do not accept genocide or colonial domination passively and who in war and armed resistance fight back as living, breathing, thinking opponents seeking to impose their will, their story, on us. To uh, be light about this, while George Bush was watching Sands of Iwo Jima, the, the Iraqi insurgents were watching the Battle of Algiers, or celebrating Saladin's victory over the Crusaders at the Horns of Hattin. What I'm sketching here is war as a space for the clash of wills and worldviews, replete with the unexpected for both sides. As a social activity, a set of relations, war is above all marked by chaos and unpredictability, 
with outcomes rarely determined in advance. Perhaps in no other realm of human endeavor does fortuna reign as supreme as in war. Small happenings, as Napoleon reminds us, can have major consequences. Gettysburg occurred where, when and where it did because Henry Heath's division needed shoes. The Pusan perimeter was held and the Korean War allowed to continue as we know it because of a pause in North Korean operations after their initial capture of Seoul. War is a resistant medium for human purposes. It defeats them, reshapes them. So in my view, Said was profoundly mistaken to argue that the Orient offered very little resistance to the imagined worlds of Orientalism. As we'll see in a minute, the Orient has been resisting from the very beginning. This resistance, this armed agency, shaped the character and nature of Orientalist discourse in significant ways. It does so not by forcing us to abandon Oriental reading, Orientalist readings of the other altogether, but by forcing shifts in Orientalism to find new ways of being Orientalist in changed circumstances. And these new ways are often deeply consequential for society and politics. As an example, and uh, to sort of give you an example to hang on to what I'm talking about here, think of the shift in American politics from the liberal Cold War interventionism that helped get us into Vietnam to the hard-headed, unapologetic Western triumphalism of the neoconservatives who helped get us into Iraq and did so partly through reframing the meaning of the loss of Vietnam in American politics and society. Both positions are Orientalist in character, but in different ways, with different consequences. What made the difference between the two was enemy action, right? The victory of the Vietnamese communists, not only the influence of time-worn Puritan themes, right? That agency of the resisting Oriental other, shifting those discourses that define the West. There is a high tension between such an unstable realm as war and the rigid identity constructions Orientalist discourse seek to impose, a tension evinced in the fraught and extremist character of many Orientalist representations of war. Events at the front can resist Orientalist frames, conspire to set limits on them, expose contradictions in them. Here is where the space is created for debates, contestations, and crises back home. This space is, of course, crucially shaped by the forms of mediation available between the war front and the home front, whether we're talking about print or television media or the reigning degree of faith in government statements and so on. The myriad shocks and surprises of war are stark reminders of the contingencies of political military histories. Yet we invest in this contingent realm our most precious, most central identity constructions as the world's leading people. It is in this unstable mix that all the trouble starts and small wars come to have big consequences. Okay, I want to move on now to identify some typical tropes of Orientalist imaginings of war against non-European others and then apply these to Korea. I suggested above that the Orient has been resisting for a long time and that basic features of Orientalism were developed in wartime contexts. More than this, the very idea of the West, along with its history, is born in Orientalist total war. Herodotus, of course, elaborated a vision of the Greeks through contrast with the Persian Empire they fought. Back then, of course, the Greeks were the weaker party, fighting for their existence on an imperial periphery. A long line of scholars and political and military commentators have made use 
of the cultural materials already well-developed in Herodotus. The Persians as a multitudinous mass who threatened to overwhelm the Greeks. Their lack of individuality and freedom. Their hierarchical social and political arrangements. Their indolence and sensuality. Their capacity for and indeed enjoyment of unreasoning, passionate violence, and so on. Recognize that picture of the Persians slash Iraqis slash Vietnamese slash North Koreans? Orientalism subsequently has been marked by this extremism and by this fear, even as the poles of power shifted to favor the putative West of the day. The Renaissance recoveries of Greek and Roman traditions and their subsequent employment in Orientalisms of diverse kind took place in a Europe poised to begin its modern rise to world dominance. The birth of Orientalist traditions in a context of Western weakness and existential crisis, but subsequently flowering one of strength and dominance, marks also the American experience. Outnumbered and threatened by Indians at the beginning, Puritan traditions of Indian hating became basic to the frontier, the American West, and beyond to the ground wars in Asia. I hope you all noticed that I'm wearing my hoplite tie from the British Museum to mark this this sort of turn back to the uh, Greeks and Persians. Now, already foreshadowed in the ancient Greek narratives is the basic principle of Orientalist war, the civilizing mission. Roman, British, and contemporary American imperialists, along, of course, with the British publicists who egg us on, continued to draw deeply on this originary stock of cultural resources, even as they developed it. The West frames its use of force in the non-European world almost always in civilizing terms. The modernization of backward peoples often requires violence, ultimately for their own good. Rollback in the Cold War was about liberating the slave world from totalitarian grip. uh, uh, Narratives of peacekeeping and humanitarian intervention partake also of this world of Orientalist war. Now, I want to develop an important aspect of Orientalist constructions that is of great relevance to Korea. This concerns numbers, the idea of an overwhelming Asian horde, which is there right from the start. In the Greek and Persian wars of the 5th and 6th century BC, Persian forces outnumbered the Greeks in the major engagements but the Greeks still managed to defeat a Persian invasion of Greece. The ancient sources, and later their students among European writers and poets, exaggerated the opposing forces by orders of magnitude, according to modern scholarship, emphasizing the dramatic character of the Greek victory, a few white men against a horde of Orientals. Subsequently, whatever the actual strategic context, whatever the actual relations of political military power, this trope of a few outnumbered whites facing off against an oriental horde that far outnumbers them, generally has informed representations of war between the West and orientalized others. The film 300 is only the latest. Uh, There you go with some of the Asians falling off the cliff. Uh, It's only the latest and most recent example, one that speaks directly to the continued popular vitality of Herodotus' themes. But there are numerous other examples. In fact, you'll have a hard time finding a Hollywood war movie that doesn't involve a few outnumbered Americans. There's the few outnumbered whites, the Spartans at Thermopylae, and here uh, a nice contrast between the Orient uh, and our guys, the white guys, right, uh, discussing surrender uh, in the film. That's supposed to be Xerxes. Now, narratives that invoke the armed oriental multitude have two interrelated characteristics. The first of these 
is that it always seems to be the West that is on the defensive. Not only are contexts of imperial conquest and domination thereby easily obscured, it also becomes possible to emphasize a defensive victory in the face of a larger catastrophe. The paradigmatic case here is the oft-memorialized fight at Rourke's Drift, another small band of white men, and you don't see the hordes of Zulus around them. At Rourke's Drift, a company of the 24th Foot held off a Zulu impi. Films, paintings, and popular military histories too numerous to catalog immortalize the events at Rourke's Drift, which occurred just after a part of a British column invading Zululand on flimsy pretext to take over the country had been wiped out at Ishandelwana by the main body of the Zulu army. Yet the battle, which is the one that's remembered, eternally stands for a multitudinous mob of Zulus intent on horrifically slaughtering a few whites. Now, Rourke's drift as popular narrative is not so very far from the imagined saga of Jessica Lynch at the outset of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, but with the addition of some peculiarly American themes. The support company Lynch served in took a wrong turn and was ambushed, a wagon train in Indian country, in Indian country surrounded and taken out, the survivors subject to barbaric treatment by the natives in the mythic retelling. This allegedly included the, rape of, the anal rape of Lynch herself, perhaps the distinctive combination of con- contribution of contemporary popular culture to the old fearsome spectacles of Indians having their way with the white women. The Lynch saga, a media and Pentagon creation, had wellsprings on the American frontier. She was even rescued by a special operations team standing in for the U.S. cavalry. For good measure, the Hopi woman, the Native American woman in Lynch's unit, mortally wounded trying to fight her way out, was mostly forgotten in the popular retelling. And Lynch, of course, never fired her her weapon as befits the white damsel in distress. The Lynch media spectacle reverses the signs of attack and of defense. While its armies invaded, the U.S. public fixated on an episode involving an Iraqi ambush. This same tradition, a small party of Western soldiers ruthlessly assaulted by masses of Indians, marks also the single most memorialized engagement of the Korean War, the Chosin Reservoir. Here, too, it was U.S. and U.N. forces which had invaded North Korea. But the plot placed the 1st Marine Division and elements of the U.S. Army's 7th Division on the defensive, fighting their way out of Indian country, surrounded in the area of Chosin Reservoir by large communist forces. The Marines and soldiers had to fight their way to the sea, just as in the mythic American West, the Indians it chose in often fired down on the long, vulnerable American columns from surrounding hills. Here, the U.S. Cavalry took the form of the U.S. Air Force, which hammered the Chinese with every available aircraft and even airdropped eight two-ton spans of Bailey Bridge so that the escaping Americans could get over a 1,500-foot gorge. As if on cue, the official Marine Corps history of the campaign invokes Xenophon's anabasis in telling the story, Xenophon and his Greek mercenaries, you'll recall, serving the Persians, were betrayed and had to fight their way to the coast through Asiatic hordes. The basic chosen reservoir and plotment and narrative mixes archetypal Orientalist themes with material peculiar to U.S. history and culture. So the first aspect of the Oriental multitude is this small party of outnumbered Westerners perpetually on the defensive, As I suggest, this trope does a great deal of ideological work in obscuring Western aggression and creating defensive frames in and through which Western publics and elites imagine their place in the world. 
the notion of containment in the Cold War, a, quote, defensive perimeter, unquote, that encompassed much of the world, is one example of such a frame. But there's a flip side to this armed oriental multitude, and this is the second aspect I wish to draw out. The problem with the overwhelming numbers of the Orient, of the oriental multitude, is that ultimately they cannot be overcome. There are always more where the last lot came from. This is what's imperiling about the yellow peril. As one of MacArthur's generals, well, I've got here uh, Major General Willoughby, MacArthur's longtime intelligence chief. My favorite, if you'll notice here, is his black glove, which seems to be signature. This is him in the 60s speaking to VFW. Uh, he was of German descent. <laughs> grew up in Germany until he was 18 as an actual Prussian Junker, uh, believed that Franco was the second greatest general in world history. This is, this is MacArthur some years after the Korean War, 1962, uh, or uh, uh, Willoughby. Uh, quote, the yellow peril has progressively materialized. Under communist management, today over 800 millions of what they call cheap cannon fodder could conceivably strangulate the West. MacArthur himself complained bitterly about those who resented the commitment of U.S. resources to Asia. MacArthur feared this retreat to an Anglo-Saxon island fortress would mean the destruction of Western civilization, in the end overwhelmed by the more numerous Asians, by, quote, the enormous forces of Asia, as he put it. Now, from a North American perspective, it's one thing to exterminate Indians on the home continent and regulate the numbers of Asians subsequently allowed in. It is quite another to confront the Oriental multitude on the borderlands of its home continent. This was the situation of the U.S. and U.N. forces just south of the Yalu in late 1950. There were not enough white soldiers to overcome the Asian mass in its homeland. In Korea, continued Willoughby, quote, illiterate Chinese coolies could press the trigger of Czech automatic rifles and knock off American draftees in high school or collegiate categories an economic wastage of appalling significance. The white man is an expensive and limited commodity. When the Chinese had put their marker down in North Korea, Americans had to give up on the idea of continually expanding frontier and turn their attention, as we'll see, to trying to close it off, wall it off with their ace-in-the-hole technology. Will it be again? Fortunately, the Western genius for complex machinery has come to the rescue. Instruments of mass destruction in being or under design could stem the flood tide of communist cannon fodder. Now you can see here the intermixing of red and yellow perils, right, as well as their interconnections with Cold War strategy more generally, right? that distinctive combination of the red and yellow perils. Now as I've suggested, the successful Chinese campaign, a North Korean campaign to evict the U.S. and U.N. from North Korea in late 1950 and early 51 constitutes a crucial turning point in American experience of Orientalist uh, war. This is the moment when total victory ceased to be possible and the tensions between assertions of Western superiority and context of Oriental prowess much in evidence. Now, my research is uh, uh, very much uh, in its initial stages, but I want to give you some tidbits uh, of the two faces of this Asiatic numbers problem that I've sort of outlined. Uh, and this comes from the core commander at Chosen, uh, Major General Almond, uh, and also from intelligence analyses at MacArthur's headquarters, Far East Command. Now, in various contexts, Almond, this corps commander in Korea, uh, was given to asserting things like this, quote, any American soldier is the equivalent of 20 Chinamen in combat, right? The kind of thing you say when the Chinese are rolling over you. Now, 
He wrote in a letter at the time of having extracted, quote, the Marines and soldiers from this cesspool of humanity centered around the chosen reservoir. Now, cesspool is one instance of the many liquid or hydraulic metaphors employed to describe the Chinese and North Korean forces. Now, of course, although these forces were regularly organized in corps, divisions, and subunits, occupying distinct stretches of territory and shown to be such on the maps that Almond would have been using, right, he nonetheless transforms them with these metaphors into an all-encompassing amorphous mass, in this case a stinking one, a quicksand from which Americans had to be pulled out. Now, back at Far East Command in Tokyo, after noting that in a short period, the U.S. and U.N. forces had inflicted some 80,000 casualties on the Chinese, the Daily Intelligence Summary for 14 December 1950 commented that given the, quote, almost bottomless well of manpower potential, the overall effect of the losses on the Chinese forces is almost negligible. Right? Now, this is one use of the very common uh, use of this phrase, bottomless well, to refer to the Chinese, Chinese manpower. Now, here again, the Chinese are conceived in liquid terms, but now almost inexhaustible, as if arising from some limitless underground reservoir. Chinese forces south of the Yalu at this time were less than half a million, right? Yet it, it almost goes without saying that American officers imagined Asian lives as infinitely expendable by their leaders. In fact, the heavy America, casualties American firepower inflicted on Chinese forces in the Korean War left a lasting impression on Mao's generals. Willoughby, the G2, the intelligence chief, whipsawed between, on the one hand, fears of the Oriental multitude and omen-style confidence in the fighting powers of the Western soldier. In a press conference on 1 December with the Chinese offensive in motion, Willoughby was asked if the Chinese had sufficient forces to push the U.S. and U.N. out of Korea. Come, 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 he replied. You don't push Britishers and Americans like that. I have been suggesting some of the ways in which war is a significant source of common tropes found in Orientalist discourses, and in a very preliminary way sort of outlining some essential aspects of Oriental representations of war and their instantiation in Korea. Now, earlier I highlighted the tensions between war as an unstable realm and the rigid identity constructions of Orientalist discourses. I want now to, ter- determine, uh, to develop a little bit what I take to be the medium or fulcrum of this tension, namely the relational character Uh, of identity constructions. Now, Orientalism involves relational identities. All identities are relational. Self and other are inescapably linked together. The identity of the Westerner is bound up with constructions of an Orientalized other. In order for Americans to liberate Iraq and hence conceive themselves as liberators, Iraqis must desire liberation, be the liberated. This is not simply misperception, but a form of identity politics. To conceive the Iraqis differently, as say a people who regard the U.S. as a violent and unpredictable imperial overlord allied with Zionist interests, requires abandoning the notion that Americans are liberators. Such a reversal marked the crisis generated in American society by the Vietnam War. Many Americans did indeed come to see the U.S. as a murderous imperial aggressor in Vietnam in different ways, in part in and through media representations of the war. Events at the front entangled narratives of self and other at home for elites, soldiers, and publics. In the operational dynamics of a war, what's happening at the front come to shape and inform in mediated ways representation of that war and its social and political consequences back home. 
Here is the armed agency of the enemy I spoke of earlier, disrupting the veils of representation we try to lay over him. Now, I want to develop this example from an article in Collier's, a mass circulation weekly in the 50s, and one which shows how Americans in Korea were thinking in terms of frontier and Indian fighting and seeking to adapt their cultural heritage to new circumstances, thinking through experiences and initiating actions that would react back on that heritage. On 23 September 1950, Captain Walter Kerrig, uh, who I must say is an extremely experienced military man and uh, military historian, uh, he was an author of official U.S. Navy histories and wrote some of the scripts for Victory at Sea, amongst other things. He published an article in Collier's based on a recent trip to Korea. And he framed this article as a comparison between the Pacific War and the Korean War. Korea, tougher to crack than Okinawa, was his title. Quote, our red foe scorns all rules of civilized warfare, hides behind women's skirts, and his children play near bombing targets, ran the tagline, reading the communists as yellow in more than one sense, a kind of species of cowardly oriental Indian. The article begins with an exchange between a marine pilot and his commanding officer. North Korean forces were adept at hiding among and moving within the civilian population, much of which was on the roads as a result of the fighting. Employing those liquid metaphors, Carrick speaks of the North Koreans as moving in driblets. Quote, in disguise, the battalions filtered Indian fashion through the American lines. As a consequence of these tactics, American pilots and ground troops were often ordered to fire on what appeared to be refugee columns. Carrick's marine pilot was resisting. Quote, hell's fire. You can't shoot people when they stand there waving at you, he said. Their troops, shoot them, he was ordered in reply. Carrick editorializes, not since the days of Indian warfare 80, 80, 80 years ago, of which there are no survivors to coach our troops, have American fighting men come up against an adversary so cunningly adept at concealment, mobility, and surprise, and so insouciantly contemptuous of every rule of civilized warfare. With insouciance, he adds childlike to his overloaded stock of Orientalist tropes, writing also of the historical retrogression Americans faced in Korea, forced backwards in space and time. Now, Carrick is concerned to make a very important point about the Marine pilot's chivalrous attitudes toward what appeared to be a civilian target. Drawing analogies with American Revolutionary War success against British regulars, he argues that the, the North Koreans were taking advantage of, quote, the traditional sportsmanship of the United States military man. He suggests that this type of conflict with savage opponents who hide behind civilians is likely to become the norm in Asia and elsewhere. And he closes his article with another anguished American pilot. Quote, when I got to the target, all the women were doing their washing and hanging it up, and the streets were full of kids playing, he groaned. How in hell could I drop napalm on a target like that? Carrick suggests that the women and children were, quote, stimulated by rifle muzzles pointed their way. That is, that the North Korean troops were concealed in the village. Americans are not, quote, accustomed to fighting an enemy who hides behind women's skirts and babies' diapers. The clear implication of Carrick's discussion, although he never quite brings himself to say this, is that American fighting men do need to become so accustomed and that the pilot should have dropped his napalm. In fact, in the article, it's unclear whether he did or didn't. The Indian turns out to be a mobile signifier, first denoting the savage North Koreans, but then morphing into the reconstructed American soldiers who must now learn to fight savage fire with savage fire if they're to make Korea safe for democracy, as Carrick puts it. 
Now, Carrick's article in various ways nicely evokes the themes of my paper. He reads the red peril through its yellow counterpart. In many ways, this piece is a classic Orientalist representation of war for the mass reading public. Asian peasants, in the midst of a distinctly modern social upheaval initiated by World War II and the collapse of European and Japanese empires, and in possession of a Western ideology of human emancipation, are constructed as if they were ruthlessly clever, but backward savages. A supposedly new burden for the white man is to learn to massacre them and their women and children in the name of peace, another term for the rule of the South Korean regime of brutal Japanese collaborators and exploitive landlords, the U.S. designated a member of the free world. At the same time, Karg was an experienced analyst of war, and his portrait of horrified American pilots has the ring of truth. Pilots in the Pacific War, many recalled to serve again in Korea, rarely contended with civilian populations they could see. Bomber crews were too high up, and attack, attack pilots fought the Japanese in areas mostly free of civilians, with a few significant exceptions. Carrick shows how frontier three themes frame their thinking and action, while at the same time the distinctive experience of war in Korea and the enemy's actions reacted back on those themes, altering them and sending them in new directions. We're going to have to be the Indians now. Carrick's article, in more ways than one, was a medium between home front and war front and represents the myriad relations between them. It's the relational character of identities that make them vulnerable. The self is necessarily defined in terms of the other. The ability of Saeed to always hold constant this situation of the superior Western self can only be done in scholarly and literary texts. In practice, the Western self relies on a particular imagining of the Oriental other, a curious dependence of the putatively strong on the purportedly weak. When the other acts in ways contrary to expectations, the self potentially shakes, and nowhere more so than in defeat. The course of events in a campaign can come to pressure Orientalist representations. It's simply not possible. For example, as communist forces drove the, the U.S. out of North Korea, to blandly assert that Americans and Britishers cannot be pushed around at will and expect such a representation to stick or be accepted without generating comment. And indeed, at that press conference I quoted, it became very testy uh, and even more dissembling on Willoughby's part, which I'll spare you. Now, these dynamics, right, an assumption of a superior Western self, which then encounters reverse on the field of battle, lend a distinctive character to Western representations of these kinds of wars, which circulate between assertions of prestige and shameful fears of humiliation. And I want now to look at this a little bit in the Korean context before rapidly closing with some remarks on the frontier. I want to begin with a MacArthur quote, just to give you a tenor of this thing. I'm not sort of making up or cherry-picking quotes. There's Orientalism all over this stuff. This is MacArthur arguing for the landing at Inchon, the necessity to land at Inchon, uh, which was doubted by just about everyone around him. Quote, the prestige of the Western world hangs in the balance. Oriental millions are watching the outcome. It is plainly apparent that here in Asia is where the communist conspirators have elected to make their play for global contest, conquest. Again, that yellow and red peril uh, mixed up with one another. Now, from the very beginning, Orientalism informed American expectations of what awaited them in Korea. Asian men are generally constructed as effeminate, with the exception of a certain martial races. Right? Asians are seen as incapable of military prowess. That's a surprising thing to say in the wake of Vietnam, but it certainly is true at the time. 
When the war broke out, MacArthur and other U.S. officials dramatically underestimated the forces required to fight the North Korean People's Army, the KPA. MacArthur initially suggested only two U.S. divisions would be necessary to defend the South and liberate the North. The power and professionalism of the KPA came as a terrific shock. One Marine regimental commander had initially thought Korea only useful as a training ground for future fights against a tougher enemy in the way that the Germans and the Russians used the Spanish Civil War. This kind of line, demeaning the enemy before you meet him, uh, is much how the British and, American, British and American officers thought about the Japanese before the Pacific War began. In fact, they, they, they couldn't accept the fact that uh, Japanese uh, could, for instance, design and pilot modern aircraft. And so when uh, they were first bombed by Japanese aircraft, uh, many British and American uh, officers were convinced that the, the, the planes were piloted by German mercenaries. Right, because, of course, the Japanese can't see and so on. Right? These are starkly Orientalist constructions of Asian enemies, constructions that are then immediately upended when you actually come to clash of arms. Now, as the KPA pushed South Korean and U.S. forces back to the Pusan perimeter, MacArthur developed a respect for the North Korean soldier, while the, North, the New York Times' Arthur Kroc worried that the, quote, the weakest of the satellites is licking hell out of us. At first, the KPA was feminized, but when the feminized soldiers prove formidable, the frame is disrupted and the discourse shifts to one of the Asiatic hordes that threaten to sweep away the white men through a combination of overwhelming numbers and savagery, a fear seemingly validated when the Chinese later intervened. This underside for the numbers problem is well captured by the cover of the Marine Corps Gazette for April 1952. If I can just get through there. Uh, Marines are shown being overrun by a red-yellow horde of Chinese, who might in fact be mistaken for soldiers of the Imperial Japanese Army, a nice example of Pacific War imagery at work in the developing contest with the Communist bloc. And note, if you can see around here, the spent shell casings. These are the Marines being overrun. They evidently killed quite a number of them, but were still right, taken out. There are also many reports in Korea of North Korean soldiers yelling banzai. Uh, some of these probably imagined by the Americans, but some of them probably the result of the fact that North Korea, some North Koreans had served in the, in the Imperial Japanese Army. Right? There are the Chinese, how you might imagine the Chinese communists. For purposes of instructing Marines, right, this is an, a Marine Corps magazine. Um, it comes out in 1952. Now, after the Chinese struck, with U.S. and U.N. forces reeling, reality set in back in Washington. There was an outbreak of Orientalist panic. President Truman called for global mobilization against the inheritors of Genghis Khan and Tamerlane, the greatest murderers in the history of the world. Herbert Hoover spoke of Asiatic hordes, and others invoked the fall of the Roman Empire to barbarians. The military editor of the Times deployed an, ent an entire panoply of such analogies. Mongolians, Asiatics, Nazis, locusts, primitives, hordes, and thieves used in the New York Times to describe the North Koreans. A related trajectory is evident in coverage. Keep going the wrong way. In, in mass circulation coverage of the Korean War, on 10 July 1950, Life could publish, this is only 15 days into the war, Life could run an article called The U.S. Gets Into the Fight. But as U.S. forces steadily retreated, and even there you'll note the wounded soldier on the cover, but as U.S. forces steadily retreated and, and in many cases performed extremely poorly, the titles of magazine reports begin to take on a different tone. On 24 July 1950, Life published an article, Why Are We Taking a Beating?, with a photo of a murdered American POW lying by the roadside. 
quite a shocking photo, one that generated a great deal of complaint and comment in Far East Command. On 15 July, the Saturday Evening Post ran this one. Absolutely shocking, right? 20 days into the war. We're not the best in the world. And while Harrison, Hanson Baldwin was predictably hammered in the letters column in succeeding weeks, one person did write in to say this, right? That realization, oh my God, as the, as the self shifts to adjust the new potency of the oriental other. Right? And here we go, continuing on with this theme. This is 19 August. This is September. What hurt was to see us retreat. Right? Even after Inchon. Right? And even as late as March 1951 as the war is beginning to, is beginning to settle in. Inchon had seemed to promise that the Korean War would fit with the American war story now referred to as the imaginary, uh, oops, I'm going to have to, yeah. it's one o'clock, five more minutes, yeah, something like that. I, I think one of the features of beginning and of being at the beginning of a project is that everything seems important and you put it all in the paper, right? And by the time you get to the end of the project and you have this nice little hot rod that you can take out and present, which just marches through the material, of course, it's time to stop presenting because the project is done. So I've uh, clearly laid out a little bit too much, too much money or too much uh, material. I want to talk a little bit about how it is I want to say just a little bit about the, the course of the war in 1950 as we move into North Korea. Far East Command had convinced itself that the North Koreans were beaten. And it divided its forces into three and sent them hurtling all the way up to the, North Korea, to the, to the Manchurian border. Right? The disposition of those forces made no military sense if you believed you were facing an effective enemy. And even though Far East Command's own intelligence analysis said there were all these guerrillas up and down the peninsula behind the front lines, right, those American and UN forces are heading all the way up to the Manchurian border. And O.P. Smith, the, the, the commander of the 1st Marine Division that would end up encircled it, chosen all the way in far northern Korea, he was ke keenly aware of this vulnerability, and he repeatedly protested this to higher headquarters. His wide-open flanks, the 70 air miles that separated him from supporting forces to the west, and the 170 miles between his northernmost and southernmost battalion, a staggering dispersion for a division that was about to be subject to mass attack. He writes to the, the Marine Corps commandant in mid-November, I have little confidence in the tactical judgment of Corps planning or the realism of their planning. Now, one had played down the strength of the North Koreans, and then as evidence from October on begins to emerge of all these Chinese forces in North Korea, they play that down too. They're not going to oppose us openly, Willoughby would assure MacArthur. All of this had set the scene for that Chinese repost, which took everybody by surprise. And within that six months of the beginning of the war, when the Chinese came out 
of Northern Korea and began to push us all the way, all the way back, that's the moment when the generative effects of the Korean War really begin to bite in American society. Almost immediately, NSC 68 moves from the realm of planning, right, as a proposal before Congress, to something that gets relatively full funding, right? Just to take one example, as Gaddis puts it, NSC 68 moves from the realm of theory to that of practical necessity. The congealing red and yellow perils producing their counterpart in a new and militarized anti-communism in Washington. Now, I want to give you just one more slide to stand in for a bunch of things that I'm not going to say, um, which circulate around the problem of how it is that you deny that you've just been defeated, right? Now, MacArthur and Willoughby had a wonderful device for this. They said there were two wars. The first war against the North Koreans, they'd won. But then the Chinese launched this fresh aggression, and Truman is preventing us from winning this second war, right? So you create this device of two wars, one that you've won and the other that you've been prevented from your winning, a, a very uh, flimsy construction indeed. But even in wider society, you have the same denial of defeat. That's our gorilla slides. This is the filmic envisioning of the chosen reservoir, right? Now, what I want to point out about this, and I'll end on this, uh, is to note that the, the whole movie is about a retreat, about a near debacle. But look at that. <laughs> Do these guys look like they're retreating? And look at the title. Retreat? Hell. Right? But that's what they're doing. Right? The movie is a denial of its very topic. Right? And I have a bunch of other material to this effect, but I think I better shut up and let you guys ask questions. I never quite got to the frontier, did I? Yeah, that's a very good question. How do you, in other words, envisage your Asian allies, right? Now, one of the classic moves for that is, is in martial races, races ideology, right? Amongst the Asians, say the British in, in, in India and elsewhere, there are certain groups who are warlike. However, even though they're very much like us, one, they're kind of stupid and they need uh, Western leadership, right? Uh, and number two... They're very strong and can fight, but only these guys, right? So whereas the tendency is to see your Asian enemy as completely other and different than you, the, the Asians who are fighting with you are, are guys who are more like you, but they're behind historically, right, in time. You, you shift that time frame rather than, rather than the spatial frame, that they're, they're different than you. They're just behind us, and they need our tutelage, right? So the South Korean regime, what we're looking for are people who look like us, um, and we'll support them in this war against these, these, this communist other. Yeah. Sir John?
Absolutely. Yeah, um, uh, absolutely. Many things, many kinds of events can shift discourses, right? That struggle to represent them in certain kinds of ways. I mean, Katrina is an excellent example of something like that. Um, however, I think war is particularly uh, central and important for a whole variety of reasons. But one in particular is I think that nations conceive themselves as armed peoples in history. And therefore, wars become an ultimate test of that character and nature of the nation. And so I think in these terms, war has a very particular and central importance to the identity constructions, uh, the identity constructions at, say, at stake. Um, as for selecting the problem uh, with this stuff, um, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at a relatively small period, unlike you, Sir John, which enables me to go through a whole range of materials, both official uh, and media. Right? So I can have relatively complete coverage over about that year. Uh, and the selection process is a kind of you know, barefoot empiricism. What are the Orientalist tropes that we find in, in, in this material? Right? These references to the bottomless well of Chinese uh, uh, manpower, the various kinds of ways in which you get hoisted on your own petard, having first said that the yellow peril, um, you know, the, the Asians aren't as good as us. We can fight them, right? even though there are a lot of them but then finding out there really are a lot of them. Right? And so that, that representation contains an internal contradiction, which events then serve to expose in certain kinds of ways. John? Yeah, uh, it, it seemed to be, uh, judging from the way what you're saying, the tendency to want to exaggerate the size of the other side to make things look better. Mm. Yes, I had that in there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that was chosen. That, yeah. Yeah, but it shows that there's a chance. But anyway, I would suspect that the tendency to make up numbers would be very high. Obviously, one white soldier who was playing Asian soldiers, if they got 21, then you can look at retreat. Right. Yes. Yes. But in the current war in Iraq, Iraq, uh, there's a tendency to downplay the numbers. Yes. Yes. So I'd be curious about there should be a natural tendency to exaggerate the numbers. Yeah. Although, I mean, as, as you're saying, these, these uh, representations of how many of them sort of shift with context. I mean, if there's, if there's a reason to downplay them, then you know, one, one can do that too. Um, although I would argue that that downplaying of numbers comes in a context or speaks to a context in which our fear is that there really are quite a lot of them who are opposed to us. That's what, that's what the administration is, a, is, is, is attempting to play down it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, what can we do except, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's the kind of question. Yeah, that's the kind of question I'm just starting to get into. about Because it's interesting about the numbers about the, Ch the Chinese. This has some of the similar effects to what you have. At, at some point, before the Chinese inter intervene, there's a lot of downplaying of how many Chinese have crossed uh, the Manchuria and are, and are waiting in, in North Korea to strike or not to strike. When they do strike, then all of a sudden the estimates go way, go way up. 
uh, and there's a, a Marine Corps uh, S2 um, at the time who's written a sort of an analysis of this that I, I haven't read. I want to get into see exactly where the numbers um, and the intelligence estimates shifted in, course, in, in, in reaction to the course of events. But that's a question I can't really answer at this point. Uh, I think it's a feature of war that you have a negative stereotype of your enemy. Gandhi is an interesting one because he comes to be a marker for India as this specific place, this peaceful place, when the actual course of uh, Indian independence struggles were, in fact, quite violent. And even in, in, at its penultimate phase in the middle of World War II, involved a countrywide armed uprising. Um, and, and Gandhi, in many ways, serves to uh, obscure um, you know, the, the, this particular violent character. Of the, and I think that plays into a different set of ways of constructing Orientalist ways of constructing uh, Asia as, as mystical, um, as a peaceful, spiritual kind of a place. Uh, but just to sort of circle back for a moment to your original question, what, what I would argue uh, is that these different ways of constructing enemy others are very consequential. If you see the Germans as a, as a misled people, but who could be like us, right? That's very different than ways in which you might construct communist automatons or, or yellow perils. And that these differing representations of the enemy have a lot of con had a lot of consequences for the way it is that you go about fighting the war, what, what kinds of things that you're willing to do, and for the way in which that war is, re is represented and understand understood at home. But absolutely, this is a, a, cate you know, a, a study in the categorization of how you represent your, 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 enemy, your enemy others. Um, if I can use that as just to make one uh, other slightly related point, um, one of the problems that comes when you've been defeated uh, by an enemy who you regard racially inferior is, you know, how do you then justify what happened? How do you retain a positive sense of yourself? When the Italians were defeated at uh, Attawa in 1899 by the Ethiopians, this is one of the, this is probably the largest defeat of a, a Western expeditionary force in Africa in the entire, in entire European imperial history, wiped out almost to a man. Uh, Italian anthropologists started talking about the Ethiopians uh, as Caucasians darkened by the equatorial sun. That is today, it's really a bad thing to be beaten by black people. So rather than sort of accepting that fact, what you did is you shifted your image of the other. You made them white people. Therefore, they could be then potent and strong and armed, and it was honorable to lose to them. And I think that's a good example of how uh, representations of the enemy other have you know, very major consequences um, back home. Jennifer? been at OSU too long. <laughs> Right. You still have two worlds, self and other, and all that, but lots 
Absolutely. We don't need to hide our risk. Absolutely. Um, and the war movie also seems to have evolved. I mean, the Just the Lynch TV movie that came out like that was, you know, they couldn't make that anymore after the congressional questions. Yeah. What is the uh, the date of the first Sergio Leone Western? It's sixties and it's Vietnam era. I mean, those those that change that shift in those in those movies and the valiances of the West in part tracks this experiences of. Um, there's a whole range of answers I could give to your question. You've you know raised a whole set of epistemological things that would require several other presentations to deal with uh, directly. But let me let me try out two two different kinds of responses. One of them is this. Um, in a very basic kind of way, I'm, I'm trying to do something um, which involves a, a serious, a, a deep empirical terrain, a very particular empirical terrain, on which you build an argument that has more general implications. Now, that argument is going to be shaped by the particular features of that terrain, by what happens in Korea and not elsewhere, but it's going to speak to certain general themes that we find in other instances of Orientalist war. And, and of course, in, in the context, as I've done in this, in this talk, and in fact, I had more Korean material to come that got dropped off, but uh, is to always try and, and situ situate it in a, comparative, in a comparative context, right? So in a sense, this is an expository argument about this phenomenon of Orientalist war, one that were people to read it, they would see in it themes which, are, which they can find in other objects of analysis in other cases. That's, that's one response. The second response um, would go something like this. Uh, we have only the one definite history that we've had. Um, this sort of history of Orientalist representations in the West is one that's always developing, encountering new places, responding to new events and shifts of all kinds, right? A world of multiple and co-determinations which shape the development of these Orientalist representations and the identities and so on that are associated with them. So where we stand now, uh, in a way, in a, uh, lies at a, in a path of development and shaped by Korea, by Vietnam, by the first war in Iraq, right? by the 90s discourse of humanitarian inter 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 intervention and so on. And so, of course, these things are all going to shift the ways in which in future or now that we're, we're making use of these Orientalist representation. It becomes, as you say, much harder to be quite, to speak in quite the way that MacArthur does, right? The Oriental millions are watching. On the other hand, how many times have we heard that the Iraqis only understand force, right? A very similar kind of construct. There's always how the Indians or the natives are treated. They only respect force. You've got to be strong. You can't be seen to show any weakness. Right? This is something that's pretty, that's pretty constant. I suppose I didn't address the agency question, but that's, uh, 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 in a sense, a larger argument, where I want to, I want to try and recover um, this, bit, this idea that you simply can't represent anything just as you wish. Right? That those representations are always dealing with a world that, that it's to be difficult to contain within them, right? And and saying it's sort of direct agency that's shifting us is, I think, to, to slightly misuse the term agency. But what I'm trying to get at is that rule of these other kinds of things happening out there, these other wills um, working against us um, that shape and, and, and affect the way in which we try to represent them. 
And I haven't found a language for that, and I get in lots of trouble with the posties on that one. But um, that's that's uh, I'm yes. I'm afraid I have to play the Rick Herman role here.